welcome to In Dark Places, Equal Housing Lender. So it's been like two and a half years since the world ended. You would think that people would start kind of catching on that you can't always buy the kind of food items that you used to buy back in the good old days. Every single day I'm at work, somebody will come in there and ask if we have product A or product B or, you know, whatever that could be. I don't know what it would be. <laughs> but it's always like something that we haven't had for like two years because our warehouse no longer carries it because the world is insane now. But it never fails. There's always somebody asking for these things. And then when I tell them that we can't get it in anymore, they just stare at me with a blank look on their faces and say, Hmm, I wonder why. That's strange. I mean, come on, have you paid any attention at all to what's been going on here lately? Okay, sorry. And speaking of crazy stuff, here is the Nicolas Cage Meltdown of the Week. Yes, mm, Dr. Mm, Klein, please. I'm sorry, Dr. Klein is unavailable. Dr. Wiley is on call. If you'd like me to page him for you. Uh, oh, well, that's very good, very good. But actually, no, I, I gotta talk to Klein. Uh, is, is there a way that I can I can get a hold of him? I'm sorry, Dr. Klein is gone for the weekend. Oh, well, um, um, where'd he go? Oh. Okay, look, look, uh, listen, I, I need a new thing of pills. And, uh, well, actually, um, are you, <clears throat> are you at his, are you at his office now? Sorry, sir. If this is a medical emergency, I recommend okay. you contact your local hospital oh, or call well, Can you help me? Is there a way you can help me help you help no, me sir. so that I can get in his office? And now here is what's going on in the news this week. Mr. Haunted with Cartoon News. Goodbye, Peppy. Here's why a longtime Looney Tunes character was canceled. You won't be seeing much of the Looney Tunes skunk Peppy Le Pew in future productions, according to multiple reports. Over the weekend, a New York Times opinion piece called out the cartoon character, saying his actions normalized rape culture. Pepe Le Pew is a French skunk that was often looking for love from various characters, but most usually a cat. His actions were often unwanted and aggressive. I'm telling you this because I see the hypocrisy that goes on. It disgusts me. Okay. Uh, the best comment I found here underneath was a guy named Joe Pug. He wrote, I'm glad he's canceled and my children are safe. Now my son can get back to playing Grand Theft Auto, where he just set a hooker on fire so he didn't have to pay her. Well, good thing we got that skunk out of there. We used to talk about that kind of foolishness a lot on the show. Cancel culture crap. I found a little fancy intro music theme for it. And we were going to call it The Weekend Woke. And we used that theme for one week. And there was never really nothing else with it. So that is this week's edition of The Weekend Woke. The Weekend Woke. Here's a bit of news from right here in Williamson, West Virginia. Friday in Williamson, the body of a male was discovered in the apartments above a bar. The bar was constantly spraying air freshener to cover the strange smell. The male was once an employee of the bar. The bar workers thought that he had quit his job two months ago. The body had been there for a while. The smell of decomposition was how the body was discovered. 
How did no one seem to miss the man? He had been in Serenity Point for a while and had since gotten help to get the apartment. Whoever disposed of the items that this mail was on should not have just thrown the mattress and stuff by the dumpster for all to see and be around and smell. It's very disrespectful. This story will probably never make the mainstream media. And so far it hasn't. It was a Facebook news item. So we were thinking it's time to tell some uh, old-fashioned ghost stories. Halloween's coming up. And I found this article called The History of Horror, How Ghost Stories Have Evolved. Halloween is the perfect time to share spooky stories about ghosts, monsters, witches, and ghouls. Whether you opt for a classic like Frankenstein or Dracula, or you indulge in something more modern like Jordan Peele's Us, tis the season to be scared. But our love for a good horror story isn't limited to the end of October, according to Paul Patterson, Ph.D., Associate Professor of English, Scary stories have been told for centuries, dating all the way back to ancient culture. Huh. We see a lot of these stories start to emerge in ancient Roman writings. In the first century, they wrote letters recounting ghost stories they claimed to have witnessed, chains rattling, haunted house type stories, Patterson explains. The ghosts are never really harming anyone, but they're always showing up. A lot of time... The, go the hauntings are because the person was never properly buried. It's tied to respecting the dead. According to Patterson, stories start to become more menacing in the late 18th century when Gothic fiction came into popularity. Gothic fiction is very specific. Dark imagery, bleak, fog-filled, dark castles. A subgenre, Gothic horror, is the style a lot of the names were familiar with with Rodin, including stories like Frankenstein, Dracula, and even A Christmas Carol. These stories would combine elements of romance with dark, horrific figures. They aren't always ghost stories, there is some realism. We see similar style stories today, particularly, particularly in Stephen King's novels. King writes what you can call American Gothic, Patterson says. Gothic always has this feeling that something is off. King's stories are always set in a small-town America, and while they're not quite ghost stories, you always get the feeling that something isn't quite right. This feeling is one of the fundamental themes of the horror genre as a whole, the fear of death. It's so completely human, it transcends all of time. Modern people and ancient people are going to have the same fear. We see it in trends like zombie films. Zombies represent death. They come at you, they never stop, they're unrelenting, just like death. Those kind of themes just keep coming up over and over again. But despite a sort of recycling and refresh of similar stories and themes, Patterson doesn't believe horror stories are going anywhere. Horror is seeing a bit of resurgence, he says. Jordan Peele and other directors are breathing it new life. More and more, female directors are taking on a genre that always hasn't been kind to them. They're confronting race and misogyny in interesting, in interesting ways. And people are rethinking those roles. A lot of really interesting work is being done and will continue, continue to be done. So anyways, hang out with us while we tell some uh, old-fashioned ghost stories. With all the recent excitement and everything, I've uh, kind of forgot to mention that the ghost activity is still going on down at my mom and dad's house. On September 29th, I was down there cleaning up some stuff, getting my dad's oxygen tanks out of my sister's old room. He just kind of threw them in there to get them out of the way. He didn't use oxygen a whole lot, but he would like to keep the tanks around just in case he would smother at night or something 
And my dad's dog is still down there. I haven't brought the dog up to my house yet. I plan on doing it, but right now I've just got the dog down there to kind of make for a good guard dog. So I was in there in my sister's old room getting the oxygen tanks, going to take them back to the hospital store. And all of a sudden the dog started like whining and yipping around like he was all happy and excited to see someone. Like he normally does. And I could hear those kids that I talked about a couple months ago when I was down there talking to my dad. And I could hear kids singing outside of his kitchen door. And... He kind of heard him, but he wasn't real sure. He was just wondering if I heard him, and I did, and we both heard it, and it was creepy. But it sounded like those same kids that were singing, like right outside in the yard outside of my sister's bedroom window. And I could hear like laughing and giggling, and at one point it sounded like, Doggy! But I couldn't really make out any of the other words. But the dog could hear them or see them maybe and he was super excited because he was doing his excited happy barks pretty creepy and I am recording this on October 16th and tonight I stopped down to get some things out of the refrigerator down at my mom and dad's house to put out with the trash garbage man runs on Mondays here so I was getting what garbage I could gather up so I could take out for the garbage man. And while I was bent over into the refrigerator, I heard meep, meep, beep coming from the living room. And it didn't sound like a person making a beep sound. It was some kind of electronic device. And I've never heard that noise before in my life down there. So I don't know what it was. And I did some investigating my dad's old digital clock <laughs> which my sister got him a couple years ago for Christmas so it isn't old at all but the alarm was not set for it so that was immediately ruled out and my dad had a carbon monoxide detector in the living room so I thought well maybe the batteries are going kind of bad in it and that thing said beep 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 but it wasn't that either because there was no batteries in it. And I checked the cordless phone. Thinking maybe that it was making some kind of weird noise. And it was unplugged. Because, see, I had the phone disconnected down there a couple weeks ago. The only other thing that it could have possibly been was his window air conditioner. Which is still in the window and it's getting kind of cold outside now so I should probably take that out. But... <laughs> But that thing, uh, it beeps when you first turn it on, or turn it off. The power button makes a little meep. And it kind of sounded like that exact beep. Except there was no reason in the world why it should have said beep, beep, beep. And it's never done that before. It wasn't turned on. And I don't know. But that's the only thing it could have been was that air conditioner because there was no other kind of electronics in the living room. I don't know. Kind of weird. So I'll keep an eye out and keep investigating my mom and dad's house. This ancient story is called Chained Man in Ancient Athens. Roman Senator Pliny the Younger who died in uh, 113 AD, told a ghost tale so haunting that it survives to this day. There was, uh, at Athens, a large and roomy house which had a bad name so that no one could live there. In the dead of the night, a noise resembling the clashing of iron was frequently heard, which, if you listened more attentively, sounded like the rattling of chains. Disturbances that led to the appearance of a specter, the form of an old man, extremely emaciated, with squalid appearance, with a long beard and disheveled hair, rattling the change, chains on his feet and hands. Needless to say, the house was abandoned and had to be rented out for a cheap price. When a philosopher named Athenodorus heard the story, he reportedly rented the house and confronted the ghost. The ghost appeared and rattled around before vanishing. 
Athenodorus calmly marked the spot where the ghost vanished, and in the morning ordered that that spot be dug up, the story goes. This was accordingly done, and the skeleton of a man in chains was found there, for the body, having lain a considerable time in the ground, was petrified and moldered away from the chains. After being uh, given a proper burial, the ghost departed, and the house was haunted no more. This story is called Ghost Bro. My house was built in 1904. It is a single family home, wood frame, setting on a concrete block foundation. I have been living here for about 12 years. Of all the weird things that my siblings and I have seen in this house, this one event is my favorite. This happened to my brother. About 10 years ago, my brother and his best friends had started a garage band playing mostly Spanish rock, alternative music, but in Spanish. His friends could only get together on Sunday afternoons. They would practice into the early evening and they would usually call it quits by 8 o'clock. This was the time I usually showed up and went to bed because I worked the graveyard shift. This happened in late fall, so the days were getting shorter. They had just finished a long session when the decision to head to someone else's home came about. My brother handed his car keys to his buddy so they could load up the equipment. Everyone had filed out of the basement, but the tricky part was that they needed to walk all the way to the back of the basement, back up the stairs, through the kitchen doorway down the hall, into the living room, and out into the front porch. Everyone was outside sitting in my brother's truck waiting for him. My brother was walking up the back stairs when he remembered that he had left his pancakes in a to-go container sitting on a speaker in the basement. And who doesn't like pancakes? He made the decision to go back. Good decision. Now the basement is not clean with full sight lines. There had been partitions made and the boiler and main heating unit are right smack in the middle. So after my brother walked back, he was about to retrieve his food container when out of the corner of his eye, he sees it. It is a shadowy figure, right as peripheral vision. This feeling of dread and uneasiness washed over my brother. We had been taught that if you are in the presence of a spirit or a ghost and you felt a bad vibe, to say a quick prayer or cuss at it. My brother chose the latter. He basically told it, I don't have time for this. My brother started to walk to the back of the basement and briskly up the stairs, closing doors and turning off lights as he was walking out. The last light switch is on the opposite side of the front door. Luckily, the door was open and the light from the street lamp was flooding the living room with its amber light. My brother said he felt something at his back, but at no point did he turn around. <laughs> Don't blame him. And he flicked the last switch and the living room went dark, as did the rest of the house. As he stepped out, he pulled on the door, closing it behind him. Still holding his food container in one hand, he jogged down the last few porch steps. He walked toward the front gate. Our house resides far from the main street, essentially having a large front yard, but no rear garage. As he closed the gap between himself and his friend-laden truck, he kind of smiled and thought things over in his head, mad at himself for spooking out when there was no reason. He climbed into the driver's side of the truck, putting on his seatbelt and getting ready to pull out of the parking lot. Directly in front of the house, when one of his friends asked, Hey, wait, 
What about your brother? Isn't he coming with us? And my brother answered, What do you mean? He went to work early tonight. He is already gone. Do you see his car anywhere? The next question they asked, So then, who was walking behind you as you were leaving the house? Cold as clay. A farmer had a daughter for whom he cared more than anything on earth. She fell in love with a farmhand named Jim, but the farmer did not think Jim was good enough for his daughter. To keep them apart, he sent her to live with her uncle on the other side of the country. Soon after she left, Jim got sick and he wasted away and died. Everyone said he died of a broken heart. The farmer felt so guilty about Jim's death, he could not tell his daughter what had happened. She continued to think about Jim and the life they might have together. One night, many weeks later, there was a knock on her uncle's door. When the girl opened the door, Jim was standing there. Your father asked me to get you, he said. I came on his best horse. Is there anything wrong, she asked. I don't know, he said. She packed a few things and they left. She rode behind him, clinging to his waist. Soon he complained of a headache. It aches something terrible, he told her. She put her hand on his forehead. Why, you are as cold as clay, she said. I hope you are not ill. And she wrapped her handkerchief around his head. They traveled so swiftly that in a few hours they reached the farm. The girl quickly dismounted and knocked on the door. Her father was startled to see her. Didn't you send for me, she said. No, I didn't, he said. She turned to Jim, but he was gone, and so was the horse. They went to the stable to look for them. The horse was there. It was covered with sweat and trembling with fear, but there was no sign of Jim. Terrified, her father told her the truth about Jim's death. Then quickly, he went to see Jim's parents. They decided to open his grave. The corpse was in its coffin, but around its head they found the girl's handkerchief. So I talked about the two little ghost boys that I saw when I was a kid in Cowboy Lingo, a state park here in West Virginia. I always felt that Cowboy Lingo was a kind of creepy place. And I just found someone else's story about cowboy lingo. My family, the Clay family, stayed in the group camp at Cowboy Lingo State Forest for years upon years. But three years ago, we stayed in the group camp for the first time since the new building was built. That was a week of horror. First, there's always a deadly smell after dark. The lights go on and off, and then there are noises. The first night I was there, me, my sister Heather, and my three cousins, Amber, Jennifer, and Paisley, were up past midnight taking pics, crafting, and eating. I was taking pics when we heard the first loud noise. At first I thought it was a vacuum. Of course there are no vacuums for a cement floor. What was that? Amber asked. Let's check it out. I said. We checked the kitchen area and even outside and still didn't know where the noise was. When we got back inside, it stopped. Night two. Amber and I were coming back from showering at the shower house when we heard a loud creaking noise. There was nothing around us to make that noise. We were outside. Of course, the smell got worse. Night three. Everyone in the girls' brackets was awakened at 3 a.m. due to a loud scream and it was coming from the laundry room. My mom and Aunt Sylvia checked it out but saw nothing. Night 4 All three noises were heavy. At 6 a.m. the scream happened again. The handyman came out to check stuff out and they saw and heard nothing. Night 5 I was so scared on night 5 because I was asleep on my bunk when something touched me. 
I raised up to see nobody, and then I smelled that smell and started hearing heavy breathing. I saw everyone sleeping. I stayed awake the rest of that night. I'm not sure what caused all that that week, but I do know it happened. My family all experienced stuff that week. I went back last year, and that smell was still there, and I heard a few noises. The Babysitter. Uh, this is a story that seems like they made a movie out of, but here we go. It was 9 o'clock in the evening. Everybody was sitting on the couch in front of the TV. There were Richard, Brian, Jenny, and Doreen, the babysitter. The phone rang. Maybe it's your mother, said Doreen. She picked up the phone. Before she could say a word, a man laughed hysterically and hung up. Who was it? asked Richard. Some nut, said Doreen. What did I miss? At 9.30, the phone rang again. Doreen answered it. It was the man who had called before. I'll be there soon, he said, and he laughed and hung up. Who was it? the children asked. Some crazy person, she said. About 10 o'clock, the phone rang again. Jenny got to it first. Hello? It was the same man. One more hour, he said, and he laughed and hung up. He said one more hour. What did he mean? asked Jenny. Don't worry, said Doreen. It's just somebody fooling around. I'm scared, said Jenny. About 10.30, the telephone rang once more. When Doreen picked it up, the man said, Pretty soon now, and he laughed. Why are you doing this, Doreen screamed, and he hung up. Was it that guy again, asked Brian. Yes, said Doreen. I'm going to call the operator and complain. The operator called her back. If it happened again, she would try to trace the call. At 11 o'clock, the telephone rang again. Doreen answered it. Very soon now, the man said, and he laughed and hung up. Doreen called the operator. Almost at once, she called back. That person is calling from a telephone upstairs, she said. You better leave. I'll get the police. Just then, a door upstairs opened. A man they had never seen before started down the stairs towards them. As they ran from the house, he was smiling in a very strange way. A few minutes later, the police found him there and arrested him. I'm trying to think what movie that uh, that was based on. When a stranger calls? Maybe. Thank you. When a stranger calls. 1979. The call is coming from inside the house. Of course, Hollywood had to go and mess everything up and make a remake of it back in 2006. The Ghost of Covent Garden. The Odefi Theatre, which stands on the Strand of London, was originally known as the Sands Peril Theatre when it first opened in 1806. It only became the Odefi in 1819. This was a rather cramped establishment, which had been described as little more than a Hatsy conversion from a tavern hall. The building was subsequently demolished to make way for the theater you see today, which opened in 1858. The Adelphi has been famous for its many farces, melodramas, pantomimes, musicals, and moreover, its resident ghost. William Terrace was an eminent actor-manager and a colorful and adventurous character who had traveled extensively he had tried his hand at silver mining, medicine, sheep farming, and even tea planting in Bengal. In complete contrast to all these ill-fated adventures, he finally returned to England and took to the stage, establishing himself as one of the country's most popular actors. Tragically, his illustrious career was cut short at the age of 49 when he was murdered by a fellow actor. A rather lackluster and mentally unstable actor by the name of Richard Prince 
had borne a grudge against Terrace, perhaps out of jealousy. One grim December night, Prince, in his deranged state, waited in an ill-lit nook in Maiden Lane for the actor to arrive. At around seven o'clock, Terrace entered the passage. As he began opening his private door at the back of the theater, Prince sprang from the shadows and stabbed him with a dagger he had bought that very afternoon. Terrace slumped to the ground, mortally wounded. He was carried into the theater, where he died twenty minutes later. In the arms of his distraught leading lady, Jesse Millward, he uttered his final prophetic words, saying, I will come back. Alarmingly, it was not long after the murder that all manner of unexplained things began to occur. Actors began hearing strange tapping noises coming from the dressing room once used by Terrace. The sounds of unexplained footsteps were also heard backstage. Perhaps more disturbing was the fact that, from time to time, the appearance of strange glowing lights, or orbs, were seen. On one particular occasion, these seemed to merge into the appearance of a human form and begin floating above the stage area. One of the most recent incidents surrounding Terrace's ghostly legacy was witnessed by a lady visitor to London some years ago. Knowing nothing of Terrace's murder or the ghostly goings-on, she was surprised to see the elegant figure of a man in old-fashioned clothes pass by her in Maiden Lane. The man appeared to drift rather than walk and bore a glazed and distant look in his eyes. As he entered the passage, the visitor was startled to see him disappear at the exact spot where Terrace had been struck down. Terrace's spirit is also said to haunt Covent Garden Underground Station. By all accounts, he was very fond of a bakery which once stood on the side of the station. Perhaps the thought of a hot mince pie or muffins still lures his spirit there. The Girl Who Stood on a Grave Some boys and girls were at a party one night. There was a graveyard down the street, and they were talking about how scary it was. Don't ever stand on a grave after dark, one of the boys said. The person inside will grab you. He'll pull you under. That's not true, one of the girls said. It's just a superstition. I'll give you a dollar if you stand on a grave, said the boy. A grave doesn't scare me, said the girl. I'll do it right now. The boy handed her his knife. Stick this knife in one of the graves, he said, and then we'll, we'll know you were there. The graveyard was filled with shadows and was quiet as death. There's nothing to be scared of, the girl told herself, but she was scared anyway. She picked out a grave and stood on it. Then quickly she bent over and plunged the knife into the soil, and she started to leave. But she couldn't get away. Something was holding her back. She tried a second time to leave, but she couldn't move. She was filled with terror. Something has got me, she screamed, and she fell to the ground. When she didn't come back, the others went to look for her. They found her body sprawled across the grave. Without realizing it, she had plunged the knife through her skirt and had pinned it to the ground. It was only the knife that held her. She had died of fright. This episode of In Dark Places is sponsored in part by Warrens, Seekers of the Supernatural Paracon 2022. The Warrens, Seekers of the Supernatural Paracon will be coming to the Mohegan Sun Convention Center in Uncasville, Connecticut. On October 29th, 2022, the Warren's Occult Museum items will be on display, such as the Shadow Doll, Satanic Idol, the Haunted Dinosaur Toy, and of course, the Real Annabelle. Special guests include Nick and Tessa Groff, Keith and Carl Johnson, Jeremy Leonard, Mike Ricksaker, Arnie Johnson, our buddy UFO Fred and Mr. Haunted our friends Dylan Gray and Michelle Allen will be there 
The Warren Seekers of the Supernatural Paracon 2022. Saturday, October 29th, 2022. From 10 a.m. until 8 p.m. Alright. I just found this, and this is creepy AF. It's called The Hearse Poem. Don't you ever laugh as the hearse goes by, for you may be the next to die. They wrap you up in a big white sheet from your head down to your feet. They put you in a big black box and cover you with dirt and rocks. All goes well for about a week, then your coffin begins to leak. The worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. The worms play pinochle on your snout. They eat your eyes, they eat your nose. They eat the jelly between your toes. A big green worm with rolling eyes crawls in your stomach and out your eyes. Your stomach turns a slimy green and pus pours out like whipping cream. You spread it on a slice of bread and that's what you eat when you are dead. That story's a nice treat for you and your family. This is the story of Nell Cropsey. In November 1901, in the coastal North Carolina burg of Elizabeth City, a beautiful 19-year-old woman named Nell Cropsey disappeared from the porch of her family home. The last person to see her alive was her longtime sweetheart, Jim Wilcox. Rumor was they'd argued that night and had maybe been on the verge of a breakup based on the fact that he wasn't at all convincing when questioned. Wilcox was arrested for kidnapping and suspicion of murder. Nell's sad fate was revealed a month later, just two days after Christmas, when her body, showing evidence of severe head trauma, was found floating in the nearby Pasco Tank River. Though certain Elizabeth City town people wanted to lynch Jim Wilcox immediately, Nell's family insisted he get a fair trial, which he did twice, as North Carolina Ghosts reports. Wilcox was tried twice for Cropsey's murder. The first guilty conviction was overturned when the North Carolina Supreme Court declared a mistrial. A second trial convicted Wilcox on a charge of second-degree murder and sentenced him to 30 years in prison. At neither trial did Wilcox take the stand in his own defense. Wilcox was pardoned by Governor Thomas Bickett in 1920. To the end of his life, Wilcox maintained his innocence. Shortly before his death in 1932, Wilcox spoke with W.O. Saunders, the editor of the Elizabeth City newspaper, and revealed everything he knew about the murder. But before anything could be published, Saunders died in a car wreck, and Wilcox shot himself. Local legend says Nell Cropsey still haunts her former Elizabeth City home, perhaps trying to convey the truth about her mysterious death. Strange occurrences and even sightings of her ghost have been reported by subsequent occupants of the sweeping Victorian, still a private residence. Oh, we all love this subject. This story is called The Clown. A girl in her teens is babysitting for a family in Newport Beach, California. The family is wealthy and has a very large house with a ridiculous amount of rooms. The parents are going to go out for a late dinner movie. The father tells the babysitter that once the children are in bed, she should go into this one specific room, because he doesn't want her wandering around the house, and watch TV in there. The parents take off, and soon she gets the kids into bed and goes to the room to watch TV. She tries watching TV, but she is disturbed by a clown doll in the corner of the room. She tries to ignore it for as long as possible, but it starts freaking her out so much that she just can't handle it. She calls the parents who then tell her they don't own a clown doll. She ends up calling the police. The police arrive and apprehend the clown, 
who turns out to be a man with dwarfism who escaped from a mental hospital. In some versions, he is a homeless person dressed as a clown who somehow got into the house and has been living there for several weeks. He would come into the kids' rooms at night and watch them while they slept. As the house was so large, he was able to avoid detection, surviving off their food. He had been in the TV room right before the babysitter came there. When she entered, he didn't have enough time to hide, so he just froze in place and pretended to be a doll. My great-grandma had a clown doll. When I was little, I'd walk upstairs to go to the bathroom or something, and I would walk past my great-grandma's bedroom on the way up the stairs, and I would always see the clown doll sitting over in the chair. And it's kind of weird, because I wasn't afraid of clowns as a kid. I went in and played with it and squeezed his belly and made it laugh, and then I proceeded to go to the bathroom. But looking back on it now, that clown was creepy. This story is called The Rocking Horse. One night when I was maybe 10 to 12, I had trouble falling asleep. My bedroom was the entire top floor of our house, with my bed and such being on the left side, and storage closets and a play area being on the right side. I was lying in bed when I heard a noise from the other side of the room and see a rocking horse begin to rock. It was sitting outside one of the storage closet doors. It proceeded to rock its way halfway across the room and stopped dead under the ceiling light. At this point I was freaked out and just buried my head under the blankets and never peeked out again until morning. It was all confirmed to not be a dream as the rocking horse was still in the middle of my room when I woke up. Furthermore, I got a stern reprimand from my parents for being up and out of bed playing with my toys well past my bedtime. Their bedroom was directly below the storage closet slash play area, and they had heard the creaking of the rocking horse shuffling across the room. This story is called The Thing. Ted Martin and Sam Miller were good friends. They spent a lot of time together. On this particular night, they were sitting on a fence near the post office talking about one thing and another. There was a field of turnips across the road. Suddenly, they saw something crawl out of the field and stand up. It looked like a man, but in the dark, it was hard to tell for sure. Then it was gone. But soon, it appeared again. It walked halfway across the road then it turned around and went back into the field. Then it came out a third time and started towards them. By now, Ted and Sam were scared and they started running. But when they finally stopped, they decided they were being foolish. They weren't sure what had scared them, so they decided to go back and get a better look. Pretty soon they saw it. It was coming to meet them. It was wearing black pants, a white shirt, and black suspenders. Sam said, I'm going to try to touch it, then we'll know if it's real. He walked up to it and peered into its face. It had bright, penetrating eyes sunk deep in its head. It looked like a skeleton. Ted took one look and screamed, and again he and Sam ran. But this time the skeleton followed them. When they got to Ted's house, they stood in the doorway and watched it. It stayed out in the road for a while, then it disappeared. A year later, Ted got sick and died. Toward the end, Sam sat up with him every night. The night Ted died, Sam said he looked just like the skeleton. Okay, then. This is a story from Joan Smith from Elkhart, Indiana. Thanks, Joan. I bought a lovely 1916 bungalow in Pomona. Leaded glass, beautiful woodwork, and a newly remodeled kitchen. But it had as many as 
eight coats of faded torn wallpaper. The bathroom was a mess of fifties remuddling, and the yard was as overgrown as Sleeping Beauty's castle. For me, it was perfect. I didn't know until I had bought it that eight families had moved in and out in the past five years. The reason why was clear to me on my first days of occupancy. My daughter and son-in-law had helped me move and spent the night in my bedroom while I crashed on the couch in the den. Over breakfast, she began to scold me for getting up and hanging pictures the night before. When I told her I hadn't got out of bed, she just laughed with an, uh, Mom, I heard you pounding nails. Later in the day, alone, I passed my open bedroom door, and standing in the doorway with his hand on the door was an old man, about seventy, over six feet tall, with salt and pepper hair, wearing a plaid flannel shirt and bib overalls. I saw him clearly, but knew he wasn't real, and he vanished, like someone had erased him from the bottom up. For some reason, I wasn't frightened. Over the next two years, Mr. Price, as I found out that was his name, made life miserable for a half dozen people in my home. One son-in-law refused to be in the house alone, even in broad daylight. A young lady who house sat for me one vacation was angry I hadn't told her about him. The sound of boxes crashing off the closet shelves kept her awake, and the closet door, which stuck and was hard to open, swung freely back and forth. There was never anything out of place in the closet or anywhere else, although we were treated to the most awful crashing sounds. The sound of the huge ceiling fan smashing through the glass top of the dining room table would send everyone running into the dining room, only to discover that it was still securely fastened to the ceiling. That was a favorite trick of his. He also made the sound of a cast iron kettle dropping from a height of six to eight feet. Every night for four weeks I came home to find my soap in the bathtub floating in a couple inches of water. Living alone, I started to speak to Mr. Price, out loud. Feeling like a fool, I said, Don't do that. Soap is expensive. And the soap stopped. One night, after going to bed, I felt someone lift the blankets. I sat up in bed and shouted, That's too close. And it never happened again. It seems that Mr. Price was flesh and blood, lived in the house next door. He died January 1st, 1970, of suicide. My neighbor told me about Mr. Price after I started asking odd questions. I asked if she knew what he looked like. She didn't, but said she'd find out from the other neighbors who had known him. That night, she bolted into my house and said that she was told that Mr. Price was a tall man, a farmer type who always wore bibbed overalls. And then I told her what I'd seen in the doorway. She said he had been a carpenter. In fact, he had built a scaffold in the garage from which he hanged himself. That explained the pounding sounds. She told me that sometimes, when I was away for the weekend, they would hear furious hammering, like a berserk carpenter, coming from my home for up to two hours. She also admitted that they were being visited by Mr. Price, who had a habit of being light-fingered with her husband's tools, until one afternoon her husband went into the garage and had a talk with Mr. Price about leaving his tools alone. To my knowledge, I was the only person who actually saw Mr. Price, unless you count the afternoon when my four-year-old grandson, after being punished by his mother, said he was going into the back bedroom to play with the grandfather. Mr. Price's visits became less and less frequent as the remodeling of my home neared completion. I guess he was happy with the job I was doing and finally stopped coming altogether. 
I have since moved back to Indiana and am currently remodeling and restoring a 1926 beauty. But I miss Mr. Price. Wait till Martin comes. An old man was out for a walk when a storm came up. He looked for a place to take shelter. Soon he came to an old house. He ran up the porch and knocked on the door, but no one answered. By now, rain was pouring down, thunder was booming, and lightning was flashing. So he tried the door. When he found it was unlocked, he went inside. Except for a pile of wooden boxes, the house looked empty. He broke up some of the boxes and made a fire with them. Then he sat down in front of the fire and dried himself. It was so warm and cozy that he fell asleep. When he woke up, a black cat was sitting near the fire. It stared at him for a while. Then it purred. That's a nice cat, he thought, and he dozed off again. When he opened his eyes, there was a second cat in the room, but this one was as big as a wolf. It looked at him very closely, and it asked, Shall we do it now? No, said the other cat. Let's wait till Martin comes. I must be dreaming, thought the old man. He closed his eyes again. Then he took another look. But now there was a third cat in the room, and this one was as big as a tiger. It looked the old man over, and it asked, Shall we do it now? No, said the others. Let's wait till Martin comes. The old man jumped up, jumped out the window, and started running. When Martin comes, you tell him I couldn't wait. This story is from Patricia Orcutt from Wisconsin. Thanks, Patricia. In the summer of 1942, as a pigtail girl of 11, I stood gazing up at the spacious Queen Anne with awe. I had spent the first part of my life in a large city, and this hilltop house looked like a castle. It had everything a young tomboy could want. More than eight acres of woods and orchid, 250 feet of private lakefront, and that amazing house with its wraparound porch, a wood stove in the kitchen, and best of all, a tower. I had been promised the tower bedroom with its view of the lake. We set about refurbishing the house with enthusiasm. My life was as perfect as I could wish. I liked my new school, made friends, swum, hunted, fished, and prowled the woods. I constructed a treehouse in the orchid, where I spent many hours munching on apples and pears while I read. I can't recall exactly how long we lived in the house before he began to make his presence known. From my room, I would hear someone walking in the attic. At first, I assumed it was my mother, but I always found her in the kitchen or garden, denying that she had been upstairs. Then one night, I was awakened by a sensation of being watched. I opened my eyes to see an ominous figure looming over me, completely in black. He wore a tall hat and a cape or cloak that he held over the lower part of his face. Above high, hollow cheekbones, sunken red eyes glowered. I screamed for my father, and when he entered the room, the apparition vanished. The manifestations became more frequent, and my visitor became more visible and clearly defined. In warm weather, I began dragging blanket and pillow out my window to sleep on a little mop porch outside my room. In winter, on weeknights when my father was in the city, I would fake being cold and beg my mother to sleep with her. On weekends, I would again scream for my father. The apparition never appeared in any room but mine, but sometimes I could hear his heavy footsteps in the attic, especially if I was alone in the house. I made it a practice never to be alone in the house after dark. If my mother was out, I bundled up my homework and went next door, 
where a kind, childless couple always welcomed my company, or I sat on the porch until her return. I only saw the last of him when I grew up and left the house for good. Many years later, my parents came to visit me, and we were looking through some old photo albums. And there, in a picture of our old home, peering from the window of my tower bedroom, was his face. My mother said it was only the reflection of tree branches. Two other snapshots taken at the same time from the exact same location showed only an empty window. When I had the photo enlarged, the darkroom technician refused to make more than one print, saying he felt uneasy working with it. I hadn't discussed the apparition with him. My mother then admitted that our home was supposedly haunted. She hadn't wanted to upset me while we were living in the house because, she said, you were such a nervous child. The ghost was rumored to be a judge who had either shot or hanged himself in the attic. In the summer of 1996, I stood gazing up at the house once more. It had been let go, as they say, but now had new owners who wanted my advice on restoring it. There were four plans to strip paint from the golden oak woodwork, remove cheap paneling from the walls, and revitalize the gardens. The husband greeted me outside with a warm hug, then looked a bit uncomfortable. He asked if I would mind answering a rather odd question before he went into the house where his wife and children awaited us. My children believe they have seen a ghost in the tower bedroom, he said. Is there a ghost in this house? And my answer was yes. Washington's ghost haunts Mount Vernon. In the early years of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, when the ladies were at Mount Vernon, they slept in the mansion. The following account was reported in the New York World newspaper circa 1890. Of course, the most interesting of all bedrooms in the one belonging to the immortal George and in which he died. In it is the original four-poster bed whereon Washington passed his last moments. This historic chamber is haunted. Of that there would seem to be little doubt. Many people within recent years have slept in it, and they declare that they were awed by the viewless presence of the nation's first president. They deny earnestly that the notion is based on imagination. A few of these temporary occupants have been able, have, haven't been able to get any sleep. Obviously, it is one thing to see a ghost and quite another thing to feel one to be aware of the nearness of a strange and brooding specter. They all agree that Washington visits his chamber in the still watches of the night. Mrs. William Beale and a friend of hers spent a night at Mount Vernon. At their own request, they were permitted to occupy Washington's bedroom. In the middle of the night, they were awakened by the sputtering of their candle. They had lighted one surreptitiously and were burning it in the middle of the basin of water. Fancied they saw a spook, it went out with a noise, and they began to feel alarmed. Mrs. Beale said to her friend, You were on the side of the bed where Washington died. The other replied, No, I'm not. He died on your side. Finally, they decided that the question was doubtful, and there was no more sleep for them that night. They got up, dressed themselves, and sat around until morning scared by every squeak of the windows and at one moment were sure they heard Washington's sword clank distinctively in the corner. This story is called The Murderer's Ghost, published in the Jersey City News, June 2nd, 1894. 
The original Hudson County Jail was located at 510 Summit Avenue beside the Newkirk House, which is the oldest surviving structure in Jersey City. At this jail, the Jersey City News reported how a murderer saw the grisly ghost of his lover and victim. On the night of June 1, 1894, jailkeeper Terwilliger made his usual rounds inspecting cells when he overheard wails and sobs echoing from the quarters. He followed the moans to discover they were coming from the cell of Bernhard Alterberger, the accused murderer of Katie Rupp. According to the New York Times, Bernhard was 22 years old with a boyish disposition. He had courted Katie in Rome, New York, and won her love, promising to marry her and borrowed all the money she had saved. He convinced her that marriage in Jersey City would be best, and they took up a room on York Street, telling the landlady that they intended to be married before the evening. Bernhard confessed at his trial that he had not intended on killing Katie, but realized he could not support a family. The two were walking along Snake Hill in present-day Secaucus when Bernhard shot her. Katie was found mortally wounded the following day and was taken to the Jersey City Hospital. There, she survived just long enough to give the information upon which Bernhard was arrested and condemned. On the night of June 1st, 1894, Bernhard looked in great distress, sobbing violently and trembling upon the jail cell floor. A wild stare gleamed from his eyes as he crouched down in a corner of the stone sill. Keeper Terwilliger asked what was wrong. Oh, I have seen her. Katie has been here, Barnhard said, and he threw himself further back into the corner, turning an appealing face toward the keeper. The Jersey City News then details Bernhard's very words. She came right up to me, and oh how she looked. There was blood on her neck and face, and she put one hand on her breast as if in pain. Her face was pale, and her eyes looked at me in a sorrowful manner. I did not say a word. I could not, for my tongue seemed to be glued to the roof of my mouth. But I watched every move she made. How she got into the cell, I don't know, but when I first saw her, she was standing near my bunk and was looking at me with such a sad and reproachful expression. I tried to say something, but the effort failed. It seemed to me that Katie stood looking at me a long time, and when she finally did remove her gaze from my face, she glanced about the cell and solemnly pointed her finger toward the wall, where I saw in letters of fire the word justice. I tried to call out, but I couldn't, and Katie, with one more reproachful look at me, faded from my view. It was then that I cried out. Nothing Keeper Terwilliger said could convince Bernhard that he had not seen the ghost. It was her ghost, Bernhard shouted, shaking in tears, but it didn't matter. That night Bernhard could not sleep tossing and turning in his bunk. When the sun arose, he seemed slightly relieved, and for the first time he craved companionship from his fellow prisoners, but all day nervousness and anxiety followed him. He trembled violently whenever anyone spoke to him, and he apprehensively glanced about. The Reverend E. A. Murray called at the jail and greeted Bernhard, who begged Reverend Murray not to leave, and before the Reverend departed, Bernhard made him promise to return as soon as possible. Bernhard was hanged in the Hudson County Jail at 10.04 a.m., September 6, 1894, under the direction of Reverend Murray, who attended him to the scaffold. And that's about all of the crazy, scary, spooky Halloween ghost stories that we have for you this week. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate you guys. Thank you, Jimmy Haunted. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.